This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Peter 2, 1-10, through 10, page 1019 in the Bibles in the back of your pew. 2 Peter 2, 1-10. through 10. But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus because of his finished work. And I ask this morning that you would come and enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Would you give us a spirit of revelation, a spirit of understanding, that we would love the things that you love, that we would turn away from the things that you call wicked, the things that are unpleasing to you. God, this morning I ask for grace grace to abound in this room, grace to abound in our hearts, grace upon the hearing of this word, grace upon the speaking of this word. God, would you cause us to be awakened? God, would you stir us up this morning, just like Peter has been seeking to do for his hearers? Would you stir us up by way of reminder that we would press on, press on into knowing you, press on into pursuing you, press on into walking in a spirit of obedience before you. God, I ask that you would put, even, even I ask personally this morning, Would you put a guard over my tongue? Keep me from opinion. God, help me faithfully declare your word and your truth among us and help us receive it for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's just jump right in. I want to start by talking about becoming a people that delight in God's word that delight in the truth of God, that delight in his ways, his laws, his precepts, his commandments. 
Letter A, I think one of the most essential needs that we have in the body of Christ today, uh, especially in the Western world where we find ourselves in the contemporary moment, is to become a people who delight in God's truth. Right? As we find ourselves, I believe, in the midst of a uh, tectonic shift in our culture, in society at large, where we find ourselves, there is a remarkable transition happening right before our eyes. And I think we have to uh, stand up and begin to declare among one another, declare together that one of the greatest needs that is before us is to become a people that delight in the truth of God. So to delight in the truth of God, his word, his law, his precepts, his commandments, it doesn't just mean like, it's not this simple idea that I like uh, to read the Bible in my quiet time. Like when the Bible talks about delighting in the law of God, it's not just that you like to get up in the morning with a good cup of coffee and maybe play some music in the background and you sit there with your journal open and you like to uh, delight in God's word in that way. Now that's really beautiful and I hope that that happens. I I hope that that is uh, what happens in your life really consistently. But that is not what the Bible is talking about when it says delighting in the law of God. When he's talking about the delight of the law of God or the word of God, it means that we learn to love the things that God loves and stand for the things that God stands for. It means that our lives are lined up under the things that God says are good and they are turned away from the things that God calls evil. It means that our whole life is brought up under what God has revealed to be true about himself and his desires in his word. And we say, no matter what, we believe that your way is the good way and the right way and the way that leads to wholeness and flourishing and satisfaction and joy. There is no other way. That is what it means to delight in the law of the Lord to stand in agreement with his will, to love what he loves, let her be, to stand with God in the truth or to delight in his word is costly and it is unpopular. I just want to say that really clearly. To stand in a posture of delighting in the law of God or the truth of God or the commandments of God is costly. It's not popular. And you all face this every day. Right? We face this all over the place, right? On a daily basis, in your workplace, in relationships that you have, in family or extended family, neighbors, people around you, right? You feel the pressure of what it means to stand for the things that God stands for and turn away from the things that God calls evil. You feel that. We feel that. In our day, there is an increasing stigma for holding to the precepts and the truth of God's word unapologetically. Now, I think there's a changing tide happening in our moment. And the church for quite some time, the last several decades, has had this posture of the strategy of our engagement has sort of been something akin to keep your head down, be a good neighbor, walk through the world in a, in a way that's winsome and attractive, and hopefully you can win over someone without ever offending anyone. And I just want to say that's not an option. It's no longer an option. That is not an option that I think is realistic for us in the day we find ourselves. I believe standing with Jesus on the truth of his word will cause us to experience real reproach, real mocking, growing alienation, and potentially even persecution. And I think there are people in this room that in the lifetime of your your life, you will see it move in that direction. Like in Peter's day, let her see, 
We live in a moment where false teaching is increasing within the church. So this is the pressures that we find ourselves in, right? To conform, to move along with the world are causing many teachers in the church. I'm not talking about just people in the church. I'm talking about Bible teachers with platforms and ministries that are popular and they have a, a, a place to declare the, what they believe to be true. It's causing many teachers in the church to draw back in fear, ingest the spirit of the age, and accommodate the ways of the world. Just like in Peter's day, there's a spirit of confusion and uncertainty that marks many believers today because of the presence of false teaching, right? Do you all feel that, right? Like the confusion of what do I think about this here? Like, what does God think about this? This sounds really nice and really good and really right. And then you go to the word or you see what the church has believed for 2,000 years. And you go, wait, 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 I can't make heads or tails of this. And it is a hard place to live when teachers in the church begin to ingest the spirit of the age and proclaim it as God's truth. Now, I wanted to start where I did, talking about delighting in the law of God or the word of God. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles back a couple books to 2 Thessalonians. I started where I did and why, why I want to, in a sermon about false teachers, which is a heavy sermon, it's a sobering sermon, it's a, it, it's a weighty sermon. I wanted to start with a call for us to grow as a people who love the truth of God, love his word, because when Paul is speaking of a season of deception facing the church, he gives the primary reason for this to happen in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He says there's wicked deception that is going to sneak into the church. It's going to find its way into the church of God. Why? He says because they refused to love the truth. And so the call to be a people that delight in the truth of God no matter what, that says, I want to stand with God, I want to stand with Christ Jesus, I want to stand with his revelation no matter what, is the, uh, one of the signposts of a sturdy heart that can withstand deception, that I orient myself towards Asking God for and receiving a love for the truth. Receiving a delight in his truth. And he goes on to say this. This is terrifying. This is utterly terrifying. He says they refuse to love the truth and therefore be saved. Because of this, God sends them a strong delusion that they might believe what is false. So there is this progression that happens in the midst of false teaching, where these ideas find them, their way into the teaching of the church. They, they get uh, ingested, they get taken on, they find their way in subtle and crafty ways. They come into the church and those who have not received the love of the truth as a gift from the Father and asked him for it and laid hold of it and sought after it by, the, by faith in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Because of the hardness of heart, Paul says here, God then hands them over to a strong delusion to believe what is false. This is sobering. This is weighty. This is remarkably hard to hear. Look at letter D on your notes. 
The primary strategy, we've talked about this several weeks in a row, is that Peter uses to combat false teaching is intentionally and faithfully strengthening the church. Now, he does this in a positive way. That's chapter one, where we've been. He goes, hey, I want you to press in to the reality of your salvation in Christ Jesus. This faith that has been given to you as a gift of nothing that you have done of your own merit or own works. This faith that has been handed to you by the Lord Jesus Christ, where he has brought you into his family and made you to be a partaker of his own nature and given you everything that you need to walk in life and godliness. Make every effort to walk into that. And he strengthens them in this positive way. In chapter two, he begins to strengthen them. It's the same outcome that he is hoping for, but he does so by giving them a sober look at what happens if they begin to toy with and allow these false teachings to have their way in their minds and hearts. This is weighty. Look at letter E. Second Peter 2 is one of the most terrifying chapters in all of Scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher from the mid-1900s, says this is the weightiest and most terrifying chapter in the Bible because it portrays the real threat of false teaching making its way into the church and leading people astray. And we're gonna get into that more over the next couple weeks. So in it, Peter illustrates that one of the greatest dangers facing the church is not the darkness of the world outside, but rather false teaching as it creeps its way through the church from within. Okay, let me tell you my hope. This is, I feel raw. This is my heart for you guys and for myself in this. I'm not here to like circle the wagons and like charge us up to rail against all the things that are wrong in the world. That's not my hope. I don't wanna do that. This is a sober look at the destructive nature of false teaching as an exhortation to grow in our love for the truth. That's the, that's the hope. I want to stand and I want us as a spiritual family to stand with Jesus where he stands, right? I take zero delight in like saber rattling. I take zero pride in like getting us to stir ourselves up and go, isn't it awesome that we're right and all those other people are wrong? Let me tell you a really sobering reality that is facing me right here as I stand here and talk to you this morning. One of two things is happening in the world right now. Either I'm wrong or we are witnessing one of the greatest falling aways from truth in the church that's ever happened. I don't take delight in that. Right? Like I'm not I'm not like that's, that's not a moment of pride for me. That is gut-wrenching. And you and I all know people that are running headlong into destruction because they have taken in poison to themselves, toying with it and letting it shape their minds and their affections and their hearts. And my desire is to stand up and put strength in our spines to go, the way of Jesus is good and his truth is right and it is worth standing for no matter what, no matter what. Okay, so letter F, I give you a um, outline of 2 Peter 2 just for you to have as you wanna go study it on your own. Look at Roman numeral two. So actually take your Bible out and look at 2 Peter. We're gonna be walking through it I want your eyes to look at it. There are so many dynamic and potent and powerful 
passages or sentences in this text that I want you to just be able to see it in your own Bible as we walk through. So at the end of the last section, as Ricky outlined last week, Peter emphasized his readers ought to give themselves to devoted um, pursuit of the prophetic scriptures, right? He says, make every effort, go after these things. Do you do well to pay attention to the things that God has revealed about himself in the prophetic scriptures, right? He exhorts them to this because the scriptures are like a light that shines in the midst of a dark place, that it's going to awaken light and revelation and the knowledge of God. So he makes it really clear as he brings the first chapter to a close. He says, hey, I want you to give your lives over to paying attention to what God has revealed to be true about himself and his will in the scriptures, because it's like the only light lamp in darkness that you have. This is where you know him. This is where you know what he's about, what he loves, what he stands against, what's going to lead to destruction. The only way to have light and life in this world is to pay close attention to the word of God as it's been revealed through the Holy Spirit. That's where he ends the last exhortation, right? It's illuminating our sight in the midst of a dark world. That's 1 Peter 1.19, right? We have the prophetic word, which is more fully confirmed, Peter says, than even my eyewitness testimony, to which you will do well to pay attention like you would to a lamp shining in a dark place, right? If you were in the midst of horrible darkness, right? In the midst of the darkest cave you've ever been in and someone handed you a lamp, you don't take the lamp and throw it down and go, well, it doesn't actually give light, right? You pay attention to where it is. You know where it is at all times. You let it guide you and lead you and keep you. That is your relationship to this book. It's like a lamp given to you in a dark world. But Peter wants the church to be aware that just like all throughout the Old Testament, there were always false prophets in the midst of the true prophets, right? He says, there's, you've been given the prophetic witness. They didn't go, they didn't make this up on their own. They didn't just draw this up out of their imagination. They didn't just think this would be the good way to do it. The Holy Spirit led them along and showed forth what God was like. But just like when there were prophets in the old days, there were always false prophets around. And just like that, there will always be false teachers. Look at it in verse, or chapter two, verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, right? So he wants you to know, he wants you to know that there will be false teachers in the midst of the church who seek to draw away the church from its secure and true foundation, which is Christ Jesus, so throughout the Old Testament, there were always false prophets who came in among God's people, led by demonic forces, demonic spirits, demonic lies to seek to lead God's people astray. So in the Old Testament, there are many characteristics of false prophets. Look with me at the top of page two. I just want to give you a couple. And the reason I want to give you a couple is because there's nothing new under the sun. I just want you to know this. Okay, so as we read through this, sometimes you're going to be like, wait, 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 is Peter talking about right now? There is nothing new under the sun. So in the Old Testament, there were three realities or characteristics that defined false prophets. Number one is they did not speak with divine authority, right? They spoke and God would say this all the time to them. Hey, you are just making stuff up out of your own minds. You are just creating it. You're not speaking because I sent you to go speak. You are just, think this is the right thing to say. There's some silence. There's a little bit of space. You feel like it needs to be full. So you come up with something out of your own imagination and you say it. That's what's happening, right? He says, you're not speaking from me. You don't have my authority behind this. I never said that, God would say. That's the massive indictment against the false prophets. Look at Deuteronomy 18. 
The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of the other gods, that same prophet shall die. Right? So he goes, hey, false teachers, false prophets are marked by a spirit of presumption. They claim to be speaking for me, but they aren't. They are not. Look at Jeremiah 14. They're prophesying lies in my name. And God says, I didn't, I didn't send them. I didn't command them to speak. They're lying. They're prophesying a lying vision, a worthless divination and deceit made up of their own minds. This is what's happening. Okay, so number one characteristic, no authority of God behind it, right? Made up their own lying tongues. This is where it's coming from. Number two characteristic, this one's terrifying. They prophesy a message of peace and safety in the face of or at the exclusion of a message of sovereign, just judgment. So throughout the Old Testament, it's really clear. One of the marks of a false prophet was a perpetual message of peace at the exclusion of a message of, of judgment. Now, the true prophetic message always includes peace and salvation and deliverance, but it's salvation through some form of justice. God cannot dwell with sin. Okay, he cannot dwell with sin. He cannot just turn a blind eye to it. He doesn't just accept it and let it go. It has to be dealt with. And it is only dealt with through justice. Now, the beautiful message of the gospel is that God works out his justice in and through the sacrifice of his son, Christ Jesus, who is effective and effectual for any and all who will look at him by faith. That is a beautiful message, but it's still salvation or peace through judgment, right? There is judgment in that message. It's just laid upon the son and given uh, that, that salvation might be given freely to those who believe upon him. But throughout the Old Testament, this was a marker of a false prophetic ministry, peace at the exclusion of judgment. This is specifically important in Peter's day as the false teachers are rejecting the doctrine of Christ's second coming and his judgment that's, that's tied up with that. Right? So they're saying this is never going to happen. Right? God's not going to judge anybody. Therefore, live however you want. Live in the way that pleases your sensuality, your passions, yourself. Actualize yourself. Be who you are. Live your truth. That's the message, right? There's no judgment at the end of that road. And it is false. Like in Peter's day, it's also important in our day, right? As so many, so many are reinterpreting the beautiful reality of God's love in ways that are outside of how God has revealed himself, right? So God's love does not, does not exist without God's justice and his righteousness. They do not exist without one another. They are perfectly married together in God's holy heart. And you cannot have the love of God without the justice of God. So like that day, this is present in our moment. Look at Jeremiah 6 with me. This one is this is really terrifying considering our, our moment. 
they have, this is God's indictment of the false prophets. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now here's the problem with false teaching. It takes things that are real about us as humans, right? We're all anxious. We all have shame. We all have fear. We all have guilt. We all have problems that we're dealing with in our lives. And false teaching, particularly in this moment of the church, says all those things happen because of things outside of you. And what you need to do is just accept yourself, just like God does. Do you know how God accepts you? Only in and through Christ Jesus. Only in and through Christ Jesus. And that comes as you come to him and don't realize yourself, you die to yourself. You take up a cross and you follow him in the way of his death. You're joined to him in death by faith in him. That's what baptism is, right? We don't come to Jesus because he died so that we don't have to. We come to Jesus so that we can vicariously die through him, right? We're joined to him in death, Paul says, so that our old self can die and never come back to life. And what do we get? The newness of life forever in him. Joined to him in death, joined to him in life. We come and we die, okay? So don't listen to a message that's going to heal that wound lightly. Do you know why you feel shame? Because we're sinners and we know that we have wronged the righteous requirement of a holy God. So we cover ourselves, right? Why do we have anxiety? Because we have separated ourselves from the source of life and peace and joy and fulfillment. Why do we have fear? Because we live outside of right relationship with God and we have to try to strive to make things on our own. Don't let somebody come along and tell you that their wound is going to be healed if you just accept yourself the way that God does. The message of true healing is God has made a way for you to come into relationship with him again in and through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Number three, these were condemned to punishment by God. The result of their false teaching was that they also would be judged by God for offering messages of falsehood and deception among the people. And there would be certain punishment for leading God's people astray. Look at letter E. Peter declares that these false teachers are attempting and are succeeding, sadly, to secretly bring in destructive heresies. Look at that in verse one, right? There's false teachers that are going to be among you. What are they going to be doing? They are secretly bringing in destructive heresies among the church of God. We see the means that they use, right? The promotion of the false teachings, often brought in secretly, craftily, subtly, among those who are easily enticed because they're unsteady in their faith and belief. Now here's, here's the problem with false teaching. Is that it always sounds really nice. Right? It takes one part of the truth and highlights it, but it conveniently forgets a bunch of other parts of the truth. And so it sounds really good, right? Retains some biblical language, some concepts that we're sensible to as Christians, right? We want to be about the love of God, don't we? Right? But then it's promoted, but an entire new meaning is brought into it. Ultimately, the secret, subversive, subtle ways that this gets brought into our midst is the same as it always has. It's is God really like that? Did God really say that? Would God really judge someone? 
if they were trying to be a good person and they were trying to do these things, would a loving God really? There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. So these false teachers bring in subtle, secret, destructive heresies, even denying the master that bought them is the next phrase that Peter says. So one of the elements of the false teaching is they deny Jesus Christ, the one who has purchased those in his church. And this is where it's sober and terrifying, right? This is, these are not people outside the church. These are people who claim to follow Jesus fully, but through their teaching and through their lives, they deny Jesus. And the reason that Paul or uh, Peter uses the word master here is because they deny ultimately that they belong to him and he gets to call the shots of how their lives are ordered. He is the master. Letter G, he says, many are going to follow. This is really sobering. Peter says they're going to be successful. declares that many will follow in the way of their deception because these teachers appeal to our passions, our sensuality, and our disdain for authority is what he looks at. I mean, look at these words. Look at these words. Verse two, many follow their sensuality, right? They're telling them that they can just imbibe in their sensuality, They tell them that they can defile themselves by following in their passions. Look at verse 10. Those that indulge the lust of defiling passions. And they tell them, just like none of us like to be under authority, you can despise authority. This is wildly appealing. And people follow in the way of it. Look at the top of page three. Letter H. Peter demonstrates that these false teachers are driven by sensuality. This speaks of a self-fulfilling posture that does not submit our passions to Jesus in a spirit of obedience. So one of the marks of false teaching is a promotion of self-indulgent or self-expressing, self-fulfilling, self-actualizing views of the world that casts off teaching of the scripture as oppressive or legalistic in order to justify patterns of sin and unrighteousness. Let me just give you two ways this sounds. Number one, it commonly works itself out in the place of sexuality, right? The Bible declares that our sexuality as humans, even our genderedness is a stewardship given to us by God to be offered to him up under his rule and reign, ordered around what he calls good and right, right? It's a stewardship given to us. The Bible teaches that human sexuality is to be expressed exclusively within the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, right? This is main and plain to the scriptures. First two chapters of the Bible. One of the ways that false teaching has always crept into the church is in the area of sexuality. Whether that's sexual immorality, promiscuity, whether it's uh, um, openness outside of marriage, sexual relationships outside of marriage, a redefining of marriage, all of those realities creep their way in and promote a sensual way of walking in our own passions. 
The other expression of sensuality that finds its way into the church, deal with self-actualizing, a self-actualizing view of God's love. I've spent a lot of time talking about that a minute ago, so we'll just move beyond that. The outcome of this is that the truth or the way of truth is blasphemed. Look at this. Look at this here. Many follow their sensuality, verse 2, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, one of the common lies that I think we accidentally ingest as followers of Jesus is that holding to orthodox, traditional doctrines of the Christian faith brings maligning to God's name. Right? We go like, how many times have you heard the story? I came out of such like this fundamentalist background. And I hate God because of it. Um, The Bible invites us to see that that is not why people hate God. People hate God because of our own sin. We don't love the truth. We want to exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's why we hate God. And we can subtly take in this lie that if we hold true to the hold fast to the truth of the scriptures that we are doing harm by people and maligning God's name. Peter says it's actually the false teachers who are blaspheming the way of God. They are the ones that are bringing disparaging maligning to God's glory and nature because of the ways that they have followed in the way of truth. All right, Roman numeral three, what Paul does as he moves into the next section, sorry, Peter, what Peter does as he moves into the next section, verses four to 10, is he's gonna begin to undermine and undercut this vision that they had that there would be no judgment, right? So the false teachers are saying, live however you want, because God will not judge. God is love. God's not gonna judge. And what Peter does is he gives three examples from the Old Testament, he says, if God did not spare justice in these scenarios, I want to show you something. I want you to know something. And he gives three examples. The first is the angels that sinned. Uh, this is likely speaking of the um, sort of bizarre account in Genesis 6, verses 1 to 3, when the angels leave their abode and have relations with women and they have children and the Nephilim are in the land. And the, the idea here is there were angels who left their place. Jude speaks of this as well in verse 6, that left their place that God had given them and they went after their own desires. And he did not spare them. He did not spare them judgment. He held them up in pits for the day when he would judge. That's the first one. He goes, go back and look at that. Then go back and look at the ancient world. If God didn't spare the ancient world at the time of the flood, when Noah was there, he, he preached righteousness, Noah did, and only seven others came with him. If God did not spare them in that day, And then he moves on and he says, and if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah as they were following perversion and wickedness and sensuality and lust, if he didn't spare them, what's he going to say? Look at the top of page four. He does a remarkable thing. This is is crazy. You think he's going to say immediately, He's going to judge these people. He does. First, he wants you to be confident of something. He goes, hey, if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, if God didn't spare the ancient world at the flood, if God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah when they were walking in perversion and unrighteousness, hey, people of God, he knows how to rescue you. It's remarkable. The, it, it, it blows your mind from where you think he's going to go. Right? If he didn't do all these things, if he didn't spare these people, hey, people of God, let me just give you a little courage before we draw it up. God knows how to save his people. 
God knows how to deliver those who are his. God knows how to keep you from stumbling in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a test, in the midst of walking through all that. God knows how to hold you up and keep you firm. I want you to be full of courage and steadfast hope there. It's remarkable that he does this. Letter B, the three examples that he shows us show that God's uh, judgment will be certain even though it doesn't always happen immediately. Right? There's an implicit warning here. Christians are warned against walking in unrighteousness and sensual living promoted by the false teachers. We have to have a spirit of sobriety as we seek to walk before the Lord. But what is it meant to do? It's meant to produce in us a few things, I think. Look at Roman numeral four and I'll bring us to a close. The portrait that Peter paints in this chapter, I think could lead us to a spirit of despair, right? We could go, oh my goodness, Lord, it is, that is too weighty. It's too heavy. We could be discouraged if we misunderstand what he's seeking to do. This chapter is designed to awaken the church, to bring us to a place of sobriety and resoluteness as we pursue the truth and as we pursue holiness. Hearing these words are intended, like Peter has done throughout, to stir us up to response. Such warnings of sober uh, and so- sober portraits should stir our hearts to seek to grow in agreement with God's heart, aligning with his word. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be afford to be apathetic about gaining the knowledge of God or gaining his wisdom, right? We need to grow in the love of truth. What does it do though? I think there's two invitations or two kind of like, I don't even want to say litmus tests, but I do want to go, hey, as we navigate seeking to respond to God by growing in love for the truth and going, God, I want to stand with you where you stand because it is the good way. It is the right way. It is the whole way. Here are two ways that I want to invite us to look at and go, God, would you grow this up among us? The first is uh, this concept of holy unrest. Peter highlights that Lot's righteous soul was tormented by the wickedness and perversion of the people of Sodom. Although he was righteous, he saw and heard their lawless deeds day after day. Peter says, look at verse eight. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds as he saw and heard. One of the marks of growing in agreement with God's truth is an internal grieved spirit over the sinfulness of the world around us. As we walk through our world, our hearts ought to break. They ought to break with the brazenly sinful lawlessness that abounds. Our tolerance of realities that God calls evil. Now think about it. Think about the movies we might watch or the places we may go. They give evidence to complacency and a dull heart. Hey, I don't want us to be so afraid of going back to being like legalistic, fundamentalistic, whatever you want to like derogatory term you want to call people from the past who like had a vision for holiness and purity that I think God probably called pretty beautiful. I don't want to be so afraid of going back to that or so committed to Christian freedom, brother. What if we began to ask God, what do you think about this? Have you asked God what he thinks about your TV consumption? about where you go with your friends, the things that you tolerate, the things you are complicit with in the world. That's not meaning you have to stand up on the corner and like scream at people and do that kind of thing. But is your soul grieved by it? When you see and hear these things that God says are poison to people, Right? The reason God calls things evil is not because he's a killjoy and because he hates things that are like good for people. He looks at them and says, you are literally taking poison into your being. 
It's going to kill you. I love you so much, I'm going to call it wicked. Do we ask him his perspective on these things? Or do we so love our Christian freedom or our fear of being legalistic that we won't even begin the conversation with him? Grieving over these realities does not lead us to circling the wagons. It doesn't lead us to vitriol against those who are sinning or a spirit of judgmentalism. It leads us to intercession. It leads us to witness, right? Why does, oh, I'm so sorry. Why does, why does Paul, let me just read this. Why is Paul compelled to witness, right? Why, does he, why is he compelled to witness? 2 Corinthians 5, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us. Everybody has a date with destiny. His name is Jesus. He knows everything. He cares. He has opinions about things. He knows what's good and right, and what he calls good and right is good and right. Everybody's going to stand before him and receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what, is, what do I do? We persuade others, right? A grieved spirit leads to witness. It leads to intercession. It leads to, God, would you send your spirit and soften hearts so that they would receive the love of the truth, so that they don't reject the love of the truth and you don't hand them over to a spirit of delusion so they'll drink in what's false and march into an eternal destruction. God, would you send your spirit and your light? That's what a grieved spirit does. It doesn't lead us to like rattle our sabers together and circle our wagons and go, aren't we so awesome? Right? Like we're only where we are because of the grace of God and knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. The second thing that I think Peter tells us here that we could see as evidence of delighting in God's truth is that we grow in steadfast confidence. We grow in steadfast confidence. This is the then of the if-then statement. If all these things happened, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Are we confident that God knows how to keep us? He knows how to hold us. He knows how to lead us and Brothers and sisters, here's really, 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 really good news. Jesus in John chapter, chapter 10 says, my sheep know my voice. So every time you hear a teacher, this is, this is all we got to ask. Do they sound like the shepherd? Do they sound like the shepherd? Like the only door of the sheep? He goes, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep will know my voice. Do we have confidence in that? Amen.